begin by just telling you an article I read in an online newspaper uh, a few months ago. It was originally published in the, the, Oxford's, the Oxford Mail, uh, and it told the story of a particular couple who were traveling up the M40, uh, heading north uh, for, I think, for a week's holiday. Uh, and they decided to stop at one of the services on the M40 for a comfort break, uh, get some lunch and so on. Um, and the husband was uh, finished looking around the shop and doing what he wanted to do. Uh, and he actually got out of the, the services first, came out of the services first, headed towards the car, forgot completely that his wife was with him and drove off and drove off. Uh, she came out uh, a few minutes later, saw that the car was gone, assumed reasonably that he had been kidnapped, <laughs> and uh, alerted the police, told them, gave them a description of him, described the car, gave the registration, uh, and so the police were on high alert on the M40 for a car that had been stolen and a man that had been kidnapped. Forty miles up the road the car was spotted, pulled in on the hard shoulder. Uh, the description had gone out. The police car that was passing noticed it, pulled in, and asked uh, what was wrong uh, and if he was okay. Uh, and this is how the article finished. The police inqu- policeman inquired how Mr. Appleby had noticed his mistake. Mr. Appleby replied, I asked my wife to unwrap a toffee for me, but when there was no reply... I realized that she wasn't there, (laughs) and I'd left her behind. (laughs) Okay. Well, that little tale, that little tale, might indicate there was something wrong, maybe, in their relationship. Things, maybe, from first romantic infatuation had perchance cooled off a little bit. If you can drive for 40 miles without noticing... Uh, your wife is even there or not in his case. Um, but the Bible is very clear. The Bible is saying that what, what, happens, what can happen for couples can happen to Christians. We too can cool off in our relationship with God. That's a very real possibility. That's a very real possibility. Now, for some of you here this morning, perhaps if you're, you're new to the Christian faith, and it all seems so wonderful and so exciting and so life-changing, for you, that, the thought that they would cool off is bizarre. Perhaps you look at some uh, older Christians or those who have been on the Christian walk uh, for a longer period of time, uh, and you sense that they are lacking any enthusiasm, lacking any joy, lacking any delight. It just might seem bizarre to you. But of course, then there's those who have been on the road a bit longer, Um, who might look at the young enthusiasts and think, well, they'll soon grow up. They'll soon realize the way the world is, and with all its disappointment. They'll, they'll, They'll soon see things the way I do. But even the cynic, if that person is truly converted, the cynic, the person who has grown cold in their relationship, if they're really honest, and I've talked to quite a number of them uh, in, in the nature of my job, deep down when you begin to dig down, you realize that they, are, they recognize that something's wrong. There's a longing to go back to that joy and intimacy that they had uh, in the past. And what we have in this 
first postcard from Jesus. Uh, And if you're a guest here, if you're a visitor here this week, uh, you find us in the middle of a little mini-series in the first couple of chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, The last two weeks we've been considering who is the speaker uh, of these postcards, the sender of these postcards, and over the next few weeks we're going to go through uh, each of these seven postcards uh, in turn. Uh, And what we discover uh, in this first postcard uh, is that something was wrong. Something was wrong uh, in this church. Something was wrong in their relationship with Jesus. And they had to recognize that, and they had to act urgently in order to set that relationship right. Um, If you've closed your Bible, again, it would be helpful if you could open it to this first postcard uh, from the risen Lord Jesus to the church uh, at Ephesus. It's one of seven postcards that is written in the book. Um, And as I've suggested uh, over the last couple of weeks, numbers are used symbolically in this book. Seven is a very common Bible number and is drawn right back from the book uh, of Genesis, the seven days of creation representing completeness, uh, perfection in some way. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving these seven postcards and they represent all the churches in the region and indeed all the churches uh, in the world. Uh, and so as we read through these postcards, you'll recognize, oh, that is a little, there's something specific here, but that is a little like us. That's the sensation you're supposed to have. That is a little like us. And so as we read this letter, and this postcard perhaps is a better term, um, and you are in that experience this morning where you long for maybe a greater joy, a greater intimacy, a greater love for the Lord Jesus, but you're not really sure what to do about it, then this postcard contains the antidote. Contains the antidote. This is written to, uh, we see in the first verse that we see who speaks these words and to whom that they're speaking. These are the words, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, Last week we looked at the the explanation for that, seven golden lampstands, chapter 1, verse 20, that lampstands is a picture of the church, the place today where God's light and life should shine out from. That's what the church is supposed to be. Um, uh, there's all, we, we considered last week very briefly that there's all sorts of debate over the angel of each church, who that represents. Some have suggested that represents the senior pastor, the messenger in each church. That's not the way that word is commonly used in the book of Revelation. So more than likely, it's a reference to some sort of representative angel in heaven for each individual church. Don't ask me any more than that. I'm not really sure what that means. But either way, what you're meant to see from this first verse is that Jesus is intimately involved with his church. He holds the the stars representing the angels in his hand. He walks among the churches among the lampstands. He, he's fully aware of their situation uh, and he's fully qualified uh, to comment uh, on what is going on. 
And this first postcard then is written to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus uh, was the capital city of this region, the region of Asia Minor, the Roman province, modern-day Turkey. It was a large, commercial, uh, cosmopolitan religious center. Uh, It was a very important city, uh, and we know that a very important church was established there. Paul, if you read the book of Acts, the kind of history of the church in the book of Acts, we'll see that Paul, the missionary, uh, arrived there uh, on his second missionary journey. He preached uh, and taught there, but then his time was cut short. But on his third journey, he came back and he spent two and a half years in this city, uh, teaching and discussing the Christian faith uh, every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, It was such an important center that Paul decided it was important that he spent a significant uh, amount of time there. And so a church was established. Paul moved on, and we know from the New Testament that um, Timothy became the pastor of that church. Uh, And then from church history, we're told that actually after Timothy moved on, the apostle John came to be the pastor of this church. And so John is dictating a postcard to a church probably he knows really, really well. A church that he knows very well. A church, however, where there is a a heart problem, a heart problem, where they have grown cold in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so what is it ultimately the advice that Jesus gives to individuals and indeed churches that have grown cold in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. Three things, very quickly. We'll go through them. Uh, You're to commit, you're to come back, and you're to consider. Commit, come back, and consider. First then, commit. Every one of these uh, letters begins with the same phrase, um, I know, I know. Jesus is fully aware of what is going on uh, in his churches. He's fully aware of the situation they face. He's fully aware uh, of what churches are doing and what we as individuals within churches are up to, which is supposed to be both a wonderful encouragement and a challenge. It's a wonderful encouragement first. So if you are busy serving in your local church and you feel no one has noticed I've been doing this and no one has noticed. And you feel very unappreciated, uh, which can happen really easily. Uh, And you're tempted to give in to sort of resentment. At that point, what you should do is remember Jesus notices. He has seen. He cares. And he is pleased when he sees faithful, albeit imperfect, uh, obedience uh, in churches But it's also supposed to be a warning for us, uh, to spur us on to even greater integrity, to even greater faithfulness, to be aware that you are living your life under the watchful eye of the Lord Jesus, and nothing is hidden from his gaze. That's important to know. So these words, I know, are meant to be both an encouragement and a warning. Well, what does Jesus know? about this church, what is going on here, uh, that he commends. And that's how it starts. It starts with him, the Lord Jesus, commending uh, this church. Verse 2, I know your hard work, your deeds, and your perseverance. 
there are three, there are three things really that Jesus commands uh, in this church in Ephesus that are all connected with commitment. He commends their commitment and encourages them to continue doing that. This is great, continue doing that. What three ways are they committed? First, in verse 2, they're disciplined. They're disciplined. They're hardworking. They're active. Um, this is a church who recognized that actually being a Christian isn't just a weekend commitment or a weekend hobby. Uh, it's an all-life commitment. It affects everything. It affects all our priorities and all our efforts, all our work. And this is a very busy church, reading between the lines. This is a very busy church. I'm sure it was a city center church where there was lots going on. I'm sure there was parent and toddler stuff happening. I'm sure there was senior citizens lunches. I'm sure there were home groups. I'm sure there were men's groups. I'm sure there were women's groups. I'm sure there were inquirers courses. I'm sure it was just really, really busy. There was lots uh, going on. And we know that this isn't a church that just left it to uh, a committed few, which so happens in a church, often happens in a church, doesn't it? Where we leave it to either the staff or a group of super committed followers and the rest of us sort of just are happy to observe what's happening from the sidelines. So that's not what this church were like. That's, uh, this church, everyone was involved. Um, the year here, the years are all plural. They were all involved, all serving. There was lots of them involved in leading Bible studies and in uh, in, in praying together, um, in serving one another and serving the poor. They were were an active church. And we know that they were a missionary church. Uh, This was a great center for missionary activity. This was like a base of operations for lots of other church planting that was happening right up the Lycos Valley. Uh, So there was at least three churches that were planted from uh, the church here in Ephesus. Colossae, Laodicea, uh, and Hierapolis. So this was a church that was very busy, very active. I'm sure the leaders in the church probably didn't even know everything that was going on and everything people were involved in. But Jesus knows. But Jesus knows. He sees. And their commitment, their discipline Uh, is commended by him. Keep doing that. Secondly, they're committed for their uh, discernment. Their discernment. Verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be prophets but are not, and have found them false. Then again in verse 6, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Paul, when he was there, we know from Acts chapter 20, Paul had them well warned, look, false teachers are coming. False teachers are coming. You need to be on your guard against them. And clearly, they had taken Paul's advice. Uh, When a guest speaker came along and taught, no matter how well he was dressed, no matter how eloquent he was, what they did was they opened their Bibles And they checked out what he was saying. And they rejected anything that they thought was inconsistent with the ethics and the exclusive claims that Jesus and the apostles had taught. They were very discerning. They weighed everything up and tested things against the Bible. They weren't gullible in any way. They did not tolerate um, false teaching error or immoral living evil 
They didn't tolerate error or evil. Now, that word grates against our 21st century ears, doesn't it? Because we are, it's the air that we breathe that we're encouraged to see tolerance as always a positive thing. The one great commandment that seemed to people, our society seemed to follow today is thou shalt not be intolerant. That's one of the great commandments that still seems to have a bit of traction. But what here they're commended for being intolerant. So the question is, is, is intolerance ever a good thing? Is intolerance ever a good thing? Well, I would suggest in all sorts of ways, of course it's a good thing. If uh, the examiner finds cheating in the exam hall, it's time to be intolerant. If there are lies been told in the courtroom, it's time for the judge to be intolerant. If there's bullying on the playground, if there's harassment in the workplace, it's time to be intolerant, isn't it? Intolerance is sometimes a good thing. In, in this sense, these folks are commended for their discernment, spotting what was false teaching, immoral living, and not tolerating that. They're commended for it, their discernment. This is a church that's commended for their discipline, their discernment. And then thirdly, their dedication, their dedication. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. We're not told precisely what the hardship, the particular hardship uh, was. Uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't spell it out here uh, for, for us. Uh, but we can make some educated guesses from a little bit of church history. We know that by the time this, this book, this letter of Revelation is written, uh, we know that emperor worship was a big deal. We know that there were emperors really following on from Julius Caesar uh, just before Jesus was born. Uh, Julius Caesar, after he died, he was worshipped as a god. And that op- opened the floodgates for the following emperors. They thought, well, that's a really great idea to worship the emperor as god. How about you? we don't have to wait till you die before we do that? How about you worship us as a god now? And so lots of the emperors, Nero, Domitian particularly, uh, wanted to be worshipped as a god. And so all sorts of statues of the emperor were set up in all the major cities uh, in the Roman Empire. Temples were, were built. Uh, priests were employed, all for emperor worship. Uh, and probably when this was written, uh, at the time of the reign of Domitian, he, he loved this idea that he would be worshipped and served as a god. And he actually used it as a test for loyalty throughout the empire. So in all sorts of civic occasions or graduations from apprenticeships and all these sorts of things, what citizens would have to do was bow down to the statue of the emperor and offer just a little bit of incense. That was it. Very simple. But that's a problem, isn't it, for a Christian? That's a problem for a Christian, to worship a man as God. Because the Bible teaches that actually Christians are to bow down to only the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so it is not an option for Christians to do that. I'm sure if they refused, I'm sure some colleagues came in and said, look, it's just a bit of incense. You don't even have to mean it. Just offer the little bit of incense, burn it, bow, bow your head, go home. None of us really mean it. We all know that he's not a god, really. But the Christians in Ephesus refused to do that. They refused to compromise. They endured the hardship for some, for some, for a few We know that involved execution. But for the vast majority, what it involved really was being cut out of the economic life uh, of the city, being denied opportunities for education, being denied opportunities for employment. And so this brought real hardship for the Christians who refused uh, to compromise uh, in this way. They endured They were faithful. They were committed. And so they're commended first for their commitment because they were disciplined, active, and busy. They were discerning. They were refused to tolerate error and evil. uh, And they were dedicated. They, They were committed to the Lord Jesus even when it involved suffering. And so it all sounds really positive until you get to verse four. And then Jesus drops the bombshell For I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That might not be what you're expecting. You might think, well, actually, the description of a church in verses 2 and 3 sounds the very thing that we're aiming for. That's the very thing that we're aiming for here. If we had a church that was uh, disciplined and discerning uh, and dedicated, surely that's it. Job done. Well, Jesus says no. How are they to respond then to this? How are they to respond? Well, in verse uh, 5, we're told twice that they're to repent. They're to repent. You see, there was a problem underneath the surface. It all looked good on the surface, but there was a problem underneath that was potentially fatal for them as a church. Um, I came across recently an ad by um, promoting uh, Marie Curie Cancer Nursing Charity. Um, and it was just a picture of a young man who looked really fit, really healthy, very handsome, but sitting in a doctor's surgery, simply staring into space. And the caption underneath the photo said, Yesterday, he knew nothing about cancer. Today, he wants to know everything. You see the message? The message is he's just had the devastating news broken to him that underneath the surface where it all looked healthy was something potentially fatal if something wasn't urgently done about it. And what is it that's to be urgently done in this case? Well, they are to repent. They're to repent. What does repenting look like? What does repenting look like? I want to suggest that repenting isn't primarily uh, just been asked to clean up your act, to work harder, um, to pull up your socks, Repent is to come back, to come back, but fundamentally to come back to a person, to come back to a person. Their relationship with the Lord Jesus had grown cold, and that's what the Christian life is all about. You see, what Jesus is saying is that it's perfectly possible, it's perfectly possible to do all of those things to be dedicated, to be disciplined, to be discerning, without a heart of love 
for the Lord Jesus. It's perfectly possible to do that. Um, they were disciplined and hardworking. They were uh, discerning. They were dedicated. But the big question is not, what are you doing? The big question is fundamentally, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? You see, it is possible to be disciplined for the wrong reasons. You could be disciplined simply for the reason of peer pressure. Peer pressure. Someone has asked you to do it. You feel you ought to. You've said yes. And now you feel you're stuck. You're doing it out of dry duty. Or perhaps you are doing it out of a resentful routine. You're just, this is all what you've always done. You don't enjoy it. You find no delight in it, but it's something you feel you ought to do. And so you push yourself to do it. It's possible to be disciplined for all the wrong reasons. Mere habit and obligation, but without any joy or delight. It's possible to be discerning with the wrong heart. Um, It's possible to spot what is wrong teaching, what is wrong behavior, and to not tolerate that, but actually why you're doing that is so that you can feel good about ourselves. We are the ones who have worked it out. We are the ones who are uh, orthodox. But of course, being orthodox and having all your, your theology right, all your behavior in order, it's possible to do that, but to be hard-hearted and to be ugly about it. It's possible to be discerning where we're forever wagging our fingers at other people for what they believe, for how they behave wrongly, but we're never willing to examine our own heart. No hint of humility. No hint uh, that we might in any way have gotten it wrong. It is possible to be discerning for the wrong reasons, for proud, uh, self honoring reasons and it's possible to be dedicated to even endure some hardship for Christ but it's mere dogged determination there's no sense of a willing sacrifice out of gratitude for all that the Lord Jesus has done for me it's just I won't let them beat me dogged determination You see, it's possible to have all of these things and do all of these things and be all of these things without any heart of love for the Lord Jesus. And as I look out at a church at Strandtown that is busy, we are busy. There's a lot on. We've had a whole bunch of announcements this morning. Uh, A church that is theologically tight and we love truth. And we like to, to realize that this idea, you can't hold that if you hold this idea. They clash and we, we love to, we, we hate error and love truth. And as we look out and see lots of very dedicated people, even when it's costly. That is no, none of those things Jesus is saying is any sign that we're a healthy church. None of those things is any sign that we're a healthy church. None of those things are any real sign that you're a healthy believer. When someone falls in love, what happens? When someone falls in love, what happens? Well, the first thing is they 
desperately want to spend time with the person they love, don't they? They want that's what they want. And so you'll have guys who've only ever gone to action and horror movies in the cinema, suddenly willing to go to romantic comedies. You know. Why? Why? You've never shown any interest in that genre before. But it's just an opportunity to spend time with the person they love, they fall in love with. Uh, and so you have, the, when you fall in love, you can't stop talking about this other person. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience in your friendship group where you, someone comes and says, do you know so-and-so is going out with so-and-so? Uh, and they expect you to be surprised, but they haven't talked about anybody else for the last three months. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all to hear that. And they desperately want to please the person they love. So I can think back to a friend of mine at university who was not, let's just say, not well known for his style. Uh, suddenly coming to us and his group of friends saying and asking, where, where do you get your shirts? Starting to wear hair gel. All because he just wanted to please his new girlfriend. You see, real love is the true motivator for wanting to spend time with the Lord Jesus, for wanting to talk about him, uh, and for wanting to please him. And that is the question that we've got to ask. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it because we love him? Is it because we love him? because he first loved us? That is the x-ray question that I think we, are all, we all have to ask this morning because it's possible to be committed but be cold. It's possible to be committed but be cold. And if you suspect that that's maybe what's going on in your life, if you sense in your heart, if you're totally honest that it's just going through the motions, it's just dry duty. You're here in the morning on a Sunday morning because you, you go every Sunday morning. Uh, you serve because that's what you've always done. Or someone's asked you to do it and you feel you can't say no. And the question we've got to ask is, do we love him? And if we suspect our love has grown cold, here's what we're to do. We're to come back to him. Come back to him. That's really what repent means. It means to turn back to a person. Not pull your socks up or clean up your life or sort yourself out. It means come back to a person. Come back to the Lord Jesus is what he's saying. Come back to me. Come back to me. I will forgive you. No matter whoever you are, whatever you've done, I'll forgive you. And let me be the one who cleans you up who sorts you out, who straightens you out. Let me do that for you. That's what we need to hear. The big thing that we have to realize, however, is that the, there is an, this is a spiritual battle. There is an evil one who is consistently trying to whisper in all our ears one big massive lie. And the one big massive lie is that you can't come back to God. Look at what you've done. Look at the mess you've made. Look at the double life that you've led. You've sinned once too often, once too badly. You're excluded. You're out. And if you've ever felt the weight of that accusation, 
in your heart. Then here, please listen to the words of Jesus again. Come back to me. Come back to me. There is a way back. No matter if you've never been a Christian before. No matter if you've been someone who was a vibrant Christian, but now you completely confess that you're backslidden. Or you're someone who is here this morning, confess your love has grown cold. And that's true for all of us. None of us love the Lord Jesus and serve him as purely and as passionately as he deserves. But here this morning for all of us, come back, come back to me. But there's a warning, of course, here as well. Um, Warning in verse 5. If you don't repent, if you don't come back, if you persist in your dry duty and resentful routine, here's what will happen. Verse 5. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, a lampstand is a, a picture of the church. And Jesus is saying, if there is no love, there's no life. And if there's no life, over time, there'll be no light. If there's no love, there'll be no life. If there's no life, over time, there will be no light anymore. If we think we can manage as a church just by being committed... Work hard, be disciplined, teach the truth, and keep going. But we are not looking to foster and nurture our love for him. Then our days are numbered. And this church will, over time, dwindle and die. That's what will happen. This church, I think, heard the warning because we know there was a vibrant church in Ephesus until around the 5th century. But then it died. But then it died. It lasted for a while, but then it died. The lampstand was removed. The church was no longer. My biggest fear for Strandtown is that we are a church that's on the surface busy and active, but has no real heart, no real passion, no real awe, no real joy and wonder that the Lord Jesus would love us. Come back to him. Come back to him. It's not too late for any of us. Come back to him. And lastly, very briefly, consider. Consider what are we to remember? Jesus finishes wonderfully with a beautiful promise here. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each... um, each little postcard is the same structure. It begins with a reference to who's speaking and a reference back to the amazing vision of chapter 1 uh, in some way. The risen, uh, ascended King Jesus. He's the one who speaks these words. And at the end of each postcard, there's a reference to our fantastic future that we have referred to in uh, Revelation 21 and 22. We live our lives in between those two things. Uh, between the resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus and his second coming. We live in the in-between time where it's hard to be a Christian. But Jesus is saying, remember, consider the future you've got. What is our future? That one day we will be permitted to eat from the tree of life. 
Since our first parents rebelled in the garden, the tree of life has been taken away. We're not permitted to come and eat from that tree as human beings. We all die. It's a picture here that one, uh, that paradise will be restored. Eternal life and joy will be ours one day. That one day we will live forever in a perfect relationship with God where we love him as we ought to and sense the full force of his love for us. Uh, A place where there'll be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more disappointment, no more death. A place of joy and perfect relationship forever. See, that's to motivate us with further awe and wonder. Keep going. Come back to him. Yes, it can be hard. It can be hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Keep on in your commitment. Don't stop those things. Those aren't bad. Those are good things, but they're not enough. Come back to him. Love him as he ought to be loved because he has first loved you and consider your fantastic future. We're going to think, uh, we're going to sing in a few moments um, that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, and it was written by a guy called Robert Robinson. Uh, and Robert Robinson uh, was a Christian leader. Uh, he was a pastor. He was a poet uh, back in the 18th century, um, or 19th century rather. Uh, but after a while of faithful ministry, he fell away completely from his Christian faith. He walked away from it. He walked away from being a pastor. He walked away in many ways from being a Christian uh, and went and toured on the continent. And one day he was on, uh, in a carriage with a lady who was reading a book of po- Christian poetry and Christian hymns. Uh, And as she was reading, she got so excited at something she read, she just said, listen to this, listen to this, isn't this great? Come thou fount of every blessing, turn my heart to sing your praise, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And as she looked up, she saw tears running down Robert Robinson's face. And he confessed to her, "I, I wrote those words. And I've walked away from the Lord Jesus. And I think I, it's, it's too far for me now to come back. And she said, no. Remember the words of your own song. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Will we love the Lord Jesus as we ought this side of eternity? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We will never do it. We will always fall short. But here's what you should do. Come back to him today and receive the mercy that he wants to give each and every one of us. Recommit. Come back. Consider the future that he has for you. And when you look at him, your love for him will grow stronger again. As we keep looking at him, our love for him will go stronger again. Let me pray.